Hi, this is Sean King, host of My Youth on Record. Have you ever wondered what your favorite musicians were like in high school? My co-hosts and I took that question straight to the artists. You're about to get a candid look into the teenage years of our next musical guest. Life is made better by experiencing art and and having almost a, a kind of missionary zeal mm-hmm. for uh, making that happen for as many people as possible in as many different ways as possible. So in my career, sometimes that's been through, you know, early on being, uh, you know, a presenter of music in college and then later for a period managing a band and then and then at a different period being a DJ and then, you know, so, but, and, and now, you know, being a funder, uh, and, and an advocate for, for the art. So there are different ways in which I've done that, but I would say that's kind of the through line is just that core belief that people need this in their lives and that the, 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 those kinds of extraordinary experiences of art where, where, you know, where the artist is giving and you are receiving, but then in effect by receiving, you're giving back to the artist and you're creating this kind of symbiotic relationship. And you've experienced that as an artist. You've experienced it as well, I'm sure. You know, that's like the win, (laughs) you know, and, and getting that to be a part of the life of as many people as possible is, I think, what drives me at, at the core. Welcome to My Youth on Record, a podcast where artists share the music they created as teens and the stories behind the songs. Today, our guest is Gary Stoyer, Denver Arts Champion and President and CEO of the Bonfies Stanton Foundation. Gary has spent his life in and around the arts as a fan, an advocate, and a champion of creative expression as the tie that binds communities together. Throughout the course of our conversation, Gary took us back to his early days in New York City, where he found himself as an early teen, often wandering the cities by himself, seeking out the arts in every form. Hi, Gary. It is a real honor to have you with us today. We're really excited to have you. So just thank you for being here. It's my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So, Gary, you have probably been to more performances than almost anybody I've ever encountered in my life. From theater to music to many different showcases in between. Um, where did that start for you? How did that relationship and that love for performance in the arts, what, take us back to like where that would begin for you. Well, I think it, I, I credit a lot to my parents because I grew up in New York City uh, in an era when a lot of folks were moving out of Manhattan if they mm-hmm. wanted to raise a family. And my parents were like, no, we, we want to have a big family mm-hmm. and we want to raise them in Manhattan. And so I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, went to public school. And so kind of immersion in the cultural life of the city was just something that was part of my childhood from a very young age. Um, you know, they were taking me, you know, obviously at the age where I couldn't go to places by myself, yes. they were taking me to museums, taking me to concerts. I remember literally my first concert ever was 
Pete Seeger at Carnegie Hall what? when I was maybe <laughs> like six or seven years old. Wow. And, and I still remember it. I mean, I, I, I can close my eyes and I can picture being at that concert, picture Pete Seeger with his banjo on stage. Um, it was just, you know, an extraordinary experience. I mean, to think that I still can remember that experience. What was that like, um, as, as, as a, being six years old? Like, hearing the whole room sing songs together. What, what did that do to you? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that was wonderful about it was, was of course, his, who he was as a human being and his manner as a human being and how he projected that. So it wasn't just a concert. It wasn't just, I'm going to get up here and play some folk songs. It was, we're going to have a communal experience. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to tell stories. I'm yeah. going to be telling those stories through music. And and it wasn't a kiddie concert in that mm -hmm. sense either. It was, you know, he, he wasn't talking down to the kids. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, you know, clearly it was a, an important experience. I don't know if that particular experience is what, you know, triggered my love for live music, but certainly it was one of the earlier experiences. I also remember when I, you know, the thing about growing up as a kid in New York City is, because of the extensive mass transit system, mm -hmm. you know, you can pretty much be on your own lo long before you have a driver's license. Like in, in a lot of other places, you know, uh, you know, young people are not mobile until they have a car, until yeah. they have a driver's license. In New York City, and again, this was probably also a different era, parents were kind of less concerned about the safety of their kid mm -hmm. than I think a lot of parents are now. But, you know, I was like out and I was walking to school by myself when I was eight years old, you know. I don't think a parent now would do that. But like, you know, my mother would walk me to the route. Okay, you understand how to go. This is how you do it. You know, wait for the red light cross on the green, you know. And but so at a young age, too, I was out and about at, you know, cultural experiences. So, you know, all the uh, theater spaces, dance performances had, you know, programs where you could get like an, a kid's membership. Mm -hmm. A youth membership, you know, that was either free or a dollar or six dollars. And so, you know, I was seeing all kinds of stuff, all kinds of theater productions going on my own, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in middle school. And uh, I, I remember seeing I saw Alvin Ailey um, the first time they played on Broadway. It was either Broadway or City Center, you know. Uh, but, you know, this was like 1970 something like that, 69, 70, mm -hmm. 71, uh, you know, very early in the life of that company and experiencing, wow. you know, revelations and some of their signature extraordinary dance pieces. Um, so I definitely had that exposure to to not just music, but music and dance and theater and museums and from a very, very young age. And, and accessibility, exactly. I mean... And, and it's why I've always been a big believer in creating programs. I mean, it's great that schools might have class trips, mm -hmm. but I've been a big believer in programs that cultivate the independence and the direct engagement of young people in, in making those decisions themselves and making it accessible for them um, so that it's not always, oh, I got to go on a class trip. But it's, no, you're welcome here all the time. And that, mm -hmm. that shaped me, shaped who I am, having availability of those kinds of programs. Young people often have a knowing, or a certain pull, that leads them towards their destiny. Gary had a moment like this as a teen, when he had the choice between attending a prestigious academically rigorous high school, or a reputable, diverse school of the arts. 
and though his parents protested, Gary eventually won the battle to pursue his artistic passions. This early victory gave Gary the confidence he needed to push his school administrators to allow him to try new things, build new programs, and even start the school's first sports team. His leadership style, even then, was becoming clear. Gary was a trailblazer. Growing up in Denver right now, having grown up with the city, it seems, I feel like I'm a part of something super special. Um, did you feel that same way growing up in New York City, that you were a part, that you were able to experience something quite different? Yeah, I think there are there are a lot of parallels. I think the you know the music scene here right now in Denver is extraordinary. The diversity of it, the accessibility of it, um, you know, I think you know obviously Denver and the kind of surrounding area of Colorado much bigger in terms of summer festivals. I mean, this is like festival central, <laughs> I think, for the world. Um, and we didn't have that same thing in New York, but you had. You know the village vanguard and the village gate and mm -hmm. the top of the gate and and the the bottom line, which was an incredible music venue. So in addition to like the major venues and you know Carnegie Hall and the bottom line and I mean the um, um, you know Academy of Music on 14th Street, um, the Beacon Theater as well, which is another great music venue. Um, you just also had these clubs and you had again in my uh, you know child my sort of teenage years. You had, you know, an incredible jazz scene. You had, it wasn't quite, I was uh, uh, kind of younger than the era of like the early time of Bob Dylan mm -hmm. and that kind of early folk scene. So those those folks were already older by the time I was coming up. But you still had this kind of great folk scene and a great rock and roll scene and great kind of soul scene. You had the, the kind of early uh, kind of growth of the, you know, hip hop, you know, coming up in the Bronx and the whole B-boy movement as well, kind of happening in that time mm. period too. Um, so there was a lot of stuff going on and it did feel special to be in New York at that time, uh, kind of immersed in it. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, talking about sort of the high school era and I remember um, uh, when choosing a high school, you know, New York City has all these specialized schools and they call them and they have sort of academic ones that are kind of well-known, Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, uh, Brooklyn Tech, and then they have LaGuardia School of the Arts. And I got into Stuyvesant, one of the academic schools, and I also got into LaGuardia School of the Arts and I had a, it was the biggest knockdown dragout fight I think I've ever had with my parents. Really? Uh, because I insisted on going to the art school and they insisted I go to Stuyvesant. And, uh, and I just refused. I said, what are you going to do? Like tie me up and drag me to school every morning? No, that's not where I'm going. And, and, you know, I look back on it now and say that perhaps that's what shaped what I did with the rest of my life. That sort of one moment in time when I just had the self-confidence as a kid to kind of feel like I knew what was right for me uh, and not that I wasn't choosing academics, but that I knew that I wanted to have the arts be a part of my life, including during the school day. And it's, it's basically the equivalent of DSA here in yeah. Denver. So let's talk about 
you had you made. This is like your kind of Gandalf moment. You're like, <laughs> you shall not pass. Yes. Kind of a you did this with your parents, but then like kind of like you're saying you're doing this for your life. So can we fast forward a little bit into college when you decide that you're going to be managing and helping represent other artists? And I'm assuming like with relationships with these other artists, like what... How did you start becoming such an advocate for the arts on a like one-to-one -one basis? Yeah, well, and that in the, the 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 college experience, one thing that happened is in so in school, in high school, I was my art specialty was visual arts. So mm -hmm. initially I was I was an artist. So I was painting, sculpting, printmaking, all the different art forms. And then in college, I went to a college called Purchase College in in uh, upstate New York, just just north of New York City, that is actually a um, arts school as well, but also has a liberal arts program. So I was a liberal arts major within an arts school. And part of that choice was around the fact that I was already feeling a pull in all different directions in terms of art forms. I loved music, but knew I wasn't I'm a musician. I loved visual arts, but I decided I'm not talented enough to really make it as an artist. Uh, I love dance, but as an you know, audience member, not as a dancer. So I was grappling with, well, okay, what do I, what do I do? How do I have the arts be a part of my life if it's, if I'm not going to be an artist? And so coincidentally, the school at that point was brand new. Mm -hmm. So the good thing was it was kind of a tabula rasa, you know, it was, it was, you could do anything you wanted. I mean, I was, I loved basketball. Um, there was no basketball team because the school had just been started and it, and it was also an art school. So they assumed Artists wouldn't care about sports, so there were no no varsity teams. So I went to the administration and said, can we have a basketball team? And they said, sure, if you figure out how to do it, talk to the NCAA, find out how to get certified, raise the money, buy uniforms, hire a coach, we can have a basketball team. So I did that, and we had a basketball team, and I played college basketball. And then— Wait, what and, were they called? <laughs> Did you have to choose the name as well? Uh, I, well, I, I, I do remember that the school colors were heliotrope and puce. <laughs> <laughs> so our uniforms were heliotrope <laughs> and puce. And we just loved that. We just loved yeah. the weirdness of that because we were arts people. Yes. Um, uh, but then what also happened is uh, the concert, the, the, the school had no concert program. They had no, you know, music—I mean, they had— music training programs, but they weren't presenting any music. They weren't bringing any bands in. Mm. So again, you know, I went to them and said, well, you know, don't we have student activity funds? Shouldn't we have a program where we present music? And they said, sure. And here's a budget. And, you know, the budget was, I forget what it was, but it was like $500,000. So here I was 17 years old. And I was just essentially handed, you know, half a million dollars and told, put on some shows. Wow. Fig figure out which artists you want to hire, figure out how to sell tickets, figure out how to promote them. Um, so it was a, that also was kind of an amazing formative experience in that, you know, at a very young age, I was a concert promoter. I mean, we, we put on, we created a jazz festival. I love jazz, so we did a big jazz festival. I um, uh, had gotten to know through a kind of f friend from high school whose father was Jack Rollins, who was a major uh, uh, music and comedy manager at that time. He was Woody Allen's manager, managed 
at one point Har um, Harry Belafonte and um, a whole array of artists. And so f through him, I met this woman who was um, the jazz pianist Bill Evans mm -hmm. manager. So I said, okay, we'll present Bill Evans. And then through that, I uh, was connected to Betty Carter, the jazz singer Betty Carter. So we presented Betty Carter and Elvin wait, Jones, wait, wait a second. the drummer. And <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that are being mentioned so easily, <laughs> type of a thing. Um, and I think something that we also kind of like try to do at Youth on Record is like when a student has done something amazing, um, you kind of like highlight that. Um, what you just talked about is not something that most human beings could do much less at 17. You say it so easily, but that's incredible. Um, like, I feel like there's also some maybe, it makes sense that in some ways that conversation that you had with your parents kind of was formative when you were interfacing with all of these other obstacles and institutions. Because I think a lot of people go like, oh, they don't have a basketball team. Okay, we're not going to play basketball. But then you end up going out in heliotrope and puce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you didn't say how well you did, but I bet you didn't make it to the final four. But just, No, we were but, not such a great team. <laughs> but, but, you but know, like, Division Three. <laughs> yeah, but like, uh, those are not easy things for, for most people. No, I, you know, and who knows how one has the self-confidence to do that. I mean, I think, you know, I was lucky in that I – even though I had that fight with my parents, yeah. I, you know, ultimately I had uh, very supportive parents who supported my, you know, doing that work. I think some of it is innate. Some of it comes from within you. Um, so I can't, it's not as if I can credit any specific mentor or someone who said, yes, you can do this. It just, I always felt you just do it and <laughs> and, and until you hit a brick wall and then you find your way around the brick wall or or you start taking it apart. So it just, it, it came naturally. And I, I do think that's in part what ultimately led me to think, well, okay, um, this is what I'm kind of made to do, not necessarily this exact thing, concert presenting, but this idea of uh, kind of being the intermediary in the artistic relationship, figuring out, okay, how do I make great stuff happen on a stage? And how do I make sure there are people in the audience for that? I mean, I, I still remember there was one concert that I presented that was a, a big band um, uh, that did kind of all kinds of um, music. I'm trying to remember even the name of it. I don't, I think it was called Brownie's Revenge. Uh, it had an odd name. And it was, you know, they had a horn section, they had singers, they, you know, and they, they did kind of big band jazz music, but also like Western swing and just sort of all, all kinds of different genres. And it was, they were incredible. And I presented them and there were more people on stage than there were in the audience. <laughs> uh, there were maybe 20 people in, in the audience and maybe 30 people on stage. And I still remember the incredible frustration and pain of that, yes. the feeling of failure on my part, like I didn't get the audience there and uh, and the feeling of pain for the musicians because I'm like, man, what must it be like to be on stage and looking out into an empty house when you're playing your heart out, you know? So that stayed with me as well of, of I think, um, always wanting, always realizing there are two sides. It's not just enough to have great art on the stage, great music on the stage. You also, the the art 
is a relationship. Mm-hmm. It's a relationship with an audience, and you need the audience to make the art. My Youth on Record features youth co-hosts who are at the beginning of their creative careers. This week, my friend Stevie joined me to ask Gary some advice he would offer young people at the start of their careers. We learn a lot about how building relationships and knowing all parts of a project is key to any artistic endeavor. So one of the questions I had for you, you have like an extensive rap sheet of putting on events and doing a whole bunch of things. And um, that's one thing that I've slowly been trying to do. So my question is, what's the most important thing that you found putting on a show or like an event requires like from you solely? Hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting. The, um, you know, and it gets to one of the things I was sort of talking about earlier. One thing, there was a period also where I kind of was, you know, producing theater. We've been talking mostly about, you know, about music here. But the the example I use is from theater because I think it's it's uh, relevant to music. So, so I spent time in the nonprofit theater, and and nonprofit theaters are generally structured so that you have an artistic director and a managing director who runs the business side of the operation. And one of the things that was always frustrating to me was feeling like, okay, if I'm I'm the kind of managing director guy. I have no involvement with the art. Mm. I'm like the one who makes sure the money's there, who makes sure the lights are on. Um, but I want that connection to the art as well. And in the, and and there's this old tradition of like the the um, uh, the impresario in the in the dance world, the theater world, the old way it used to be doing, who would hire the artist, you know, put the art together put the ad campaign together, sell the tickets, raise the money, do it all. And that's really what I wanted to do. And that's what was exciting to me. And so uh, I ended up becoming a commercial theater producer for a while where, and that's the way it works in the commercial theater. So that's one aspect of the commercial theater that to me was really appealing is that there wasn't this artificial distinction between art and money, the two sides of what it takes to to make art and present art. Um, and in music as well, it would I would say one of the things that was always exciting to me about being a music presenter, producer, is that you were involved in every aspect of the experience. So you were the one who said, okay, I'm going to present this band. You were the one who said, okay, how much is it going to cost? You had to, you had to run the numbers. You had to have a budget. You had to figure out, okay in a house of this capacity at a ticket price of this capacity, if the artist wants to get paid X, does that work? No, maybe this artist is too too expensive or maybe they need to come down in their fee to make the numbers work. And then you have to figure out how to sell those tickets and promote it. And so to me, that, that was particularly appealing or exciting. And I've done that in sort of different ways along the way. Uh, Now, you know, that I'm more on the side of, um, funding, policy, promotion, it's sort of respecting the importance of that work and figuring out how I can enable that and make more of it happen. But there is a piece of me, you know, talking about what what I personally got out of it and what yeah. got me most excited, there is still a piece of me that misses that, that misses that sensation of producing an amazing show, whether it's a theater production or, or, a, or a music event, 
and realizing, even though you're not the one on stage making the music, you... You're the reason. You're the reason this is happening, man. You know, you just get that chill up your spine because you've got, whether it's 50 people in an an audience, 500 or 5,000, you know they wouldn't be there if not for you. And and that's that's an amazing feeling. Being a contributor to the efforts here at Youth on Record, I'm wondering what your hopes for the youth we work with are and just the general young population of Denver. Yeah, I think I, I, I would say to, to f- through their experience at Youth on Record to have the, the self-confidence and the network to live their fullest lives. And for some folks, that will mean, you know, committing to music and music being a part of their lives. Um, and that's great. But recognizing that for some folks, that won't necessarily be their professional path, but that their experience they've had here will give them the tools they need to that will be a part of who they are no matter what path they choose. And And, and certainly related to that, I hope that Denver as a community can continue to be um, welcoming, diverse, affordable, you know, a place where people can really make a life for themselves. And that's a, that's a bigger issue than what Youth on Record does or what Bonfi Stanton Foundation does. But I think that's an important part of this as well, because you want people who grow up here to, uh, be inspired to want to make their life here and stay here and be a part of, continuing to make the city, the community, their neighborhood the best possible place to be. My Youth on Record is proudly brought to you by Youth on Record, a Colorado nonprofit organization where local teens are empowered to find their voice and value by working with local musicians as their educators. Teens and Youth on Records programs are working to be both the next generation of creatives as well as community leaders. They do this through music, poetry, and storytelling. My Youth on Record is one of their newest programs. Learn more at www.youthonrecord.org. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Gary. That was Thank so you all. magical. It's been great. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> <laughs>